The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, Every once in a while, and actually more frequently uh, recently, we got into some heady theoretical discussions in archaeology. And I think it's very important and certainly a priority for those out there in the listenership to understand where the profession is moving in a pedagogic and philosophical sense, if you will, because archaeological theory in very many cases, in most cases, is basically representing the sum total of methodological advances and advances in the knowledge base generally and how we formulate ideas about the human condition, where it's going, and of course where it's been, which is our concern in archaeology. So uh, it, it's uh, a major interest of mine, certainly, and a lot of other people who are involved in the pro- uh, profession to discuss the entire question about a cultural evolution. And cultural evolution is, I would say, on the world scale, a very unique, well, not an exclusive, but certainly a uniquely American perspective in, in uh Archaeology, because we come from the anthropological school and evolutionary theory, both in terms of physical development of the species and mental and uh, sociocultural development of the species, is certainly at the forefront of what we do and the way we study the emergence and the development and the progress of the human condition. So without getting overly heady, um, I think it's it's really important that we update our listenership into some of the advances in contemporary cultural evolutionary theory. And towards that end, I have brought in one of the specialists in this field, and that would be Dr. Peter Peregrine. He is a professor of anthropology at Lawrence University, and his research focuses on big questions of human history. Why did people live in cities, for example? How do coercive leaders maintain their power? What happens when people from very different cultural and linguistic backgrounds come to live together? And uh, he has pursued answers to these questions in a variety of different ways, from archaeological excavation to complex cross-cultural 
cultural statistical analysis. Now, Dr. Peregrine's experience in the field is wide-ranging. He has done work in the mid-continental United States. He has also worked in the United Kingdom, uh, in Kenya, in Japan, and in northern Syria. So he is very well grounded in a variety of different elements of archaeological method and theory. He has also done a fair amount of geophysical work. And uh, so his toolkit, as we say in the profession, is is extensive and uh, expands to a variety of different domains. He has published a variety of different articles and books, uh, some of the most notable of which include what happened in prehistory, uh, exploring five major revolutions in the human condition from the origin of our genius, genus to the modern age. Two other books, uh, Why Anthropology Matters and Americans Are Weird, are due out by the end of uh, next year. So, Peter, very welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Happy to be here and happy to uh, join your listenership. I hope I can uh, be of help in... Uh, helping people understand cultural evolution a little better. I think that's very critical, but uh, before we get into that discussion, I have to say I am impressed by the title that Americans are weird. What is that about? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that one. All right. Well, that, that whole um, series is a, a, a set of books that I am slowly getting through writing uh, that are intended for a general audience um, to try and get some core ideas of anthropology and archaeology across in a very simple way. So they're, they're available on Kindle and Nook. Um, they're inexpensive, and so they're, they're meant to just be open kind of for, for anyone can, can access that. So the, the, the only book that's published so far is this What Happened in Prehistory. Um, but the other books that are planned that I'm in the midst of writing are intended to introduce other things. So, Americans Are Weird um, is based on the idea that if you look cross-culturally, many of the practices that we uh, think are normal are rare in the broader context of other cultures, and so we can think of ourselves as weird um, the, the, there's kind of a, a play on words because weird, the term, is actually also an acronym for Western European rich industrial democratic societies. Western, is that right? Yeah. Western yeah. European industrial um, democratic society, whatever, whatever. But anyway, that's what weird is also used as an acronym for that. But for example, um, I was just doing this in class today. The, the system that we use to call our, our relatives, which anthropologists call Inuit or Eskimo, where we have aunts and uncles and cousins, is actually a very rare system. It's, I, I, I believe, only 6%, something like that, of the, of the known cultures use that system. Most people have a system where um, father's brother or mother's sister, which are called parallel um, aunts or uncles, uh, would be called father or mother, and then their children that we call cousins would be called brothers and sisters. So, Yeah, th- those are conceptual differences that are, in many cases, as you said, culturally based. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that Americans Are Weird explores a whole bunch of those things where we think is just typical and normal, but actually we're actually, we're 
we're sort of weird in in our practices. And I understand that. I guess my only question on that uh, is that that statement could be interpreted into a number in a number of ways. For example, when I heard it, uh, based on my own mindset and and coming from an anthropological background, I was also thinking, well, are you making a distinction between Western culture and other cultures, or is it uniquely American? Uh, Western cultures, yeah. Ah, okay, so, okay. So right, uh, but. And and it's you know it's one of those titles it's supposed to to catch the eye and uh, and I and you hope someone will look at that and go wait what do you, what is this about yeah. <laughs> that's right and I think yeah. it's very appealing in the sense that uh, that's one of the hooks that that a broader listenership would certainly uh, catch on to and look at with with a fair amount of in- intrigue and I suspect interest right and in that connection you have certainly published extensively and discussed extensively uh, the entire question of cultural evolution and I would think that a lot of our listeners would be interested in your defining some of these terms sure. because they're not widely circulated and, and and I think we we have to talk about it in the Darwinian sense, both physically and socially, there are concepts of, of human evolution, which is a physical phenomena, and of course, what's become much more widely, well, not more widely discussed, but certainly extensively discussed in the past, is the entire concept of uh, social Darwinism. And why don't you give us a little bit of background into that, and, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Um, the basic issue that cultural evolution tries to address is why aren't all cultures the same? Or you could flip that around and say, why do cultures vary? Why do people do things differently? And that's a fundamental question within anthropology. And there have been different ways of answering that in the history of the discipline. Very early on in the discipline, uh, at, at the end of the 19th century, one of the leading answers was people ha- behave differently and do different things because they're of different races. And um, there was a big fight at the beginning of the discipline whether that was a correct answer for this question, why do cultures differ, or whether it had something to do with culture itself. And that culture itself somehow intrinsically changes, and that's why cultures differ. And the cultural school won out because the the biology of race just does not the people human beings don't segregate into races biologically well, and they have no relationship to behavior. Um, so, or a vanishingly small statistical relationship to behavior right. if, if we define races that well. So anthropology moved on to look at culture, and there came to be two major schools of thought to answer that question, why do cultures differ? One of them was called the diffusionist school, and that said they differ because um, ideas arrive, arise in a place, and then they spread. They diffuse out from those centers. And so cultures are amalgams of these ideas that have diffused from various places. So that's why they differ. And then the other one became what was the primary idea in American anthropology, which was cultures differ because they have unique histories of development. 
and that was called historical particularism. And uh, the idea that historical development should answer the question of why cultures differ ultimately, in sort of a strange way, became cultural evolution, which is the basic idea that cultures um, differ because they serve as a way that humans adapt to their environments. And that, that's the, the, the evolutionary part. Culture is seen as what we sometimes call an extrasomatic or an outside of the physical body, an extrasomatic means of adaptation. Um, and, and I give you a simple example of an extrasomatic means of adaptation that most of us in this country have experienced in the past couple of weeks, and that is wearing a coat. Um, I'm right now in northeastern Wisconsin, and if I was just my naked human being, I could not survive here. But happily, I have culture and cultural items like coat and a house that has heat and all of these things that we create around us that are outside of our bodies that allow me and others to have adapted to this climate. And that, so that's a basic idea of cultural evolution, that culture is a way that allows us to adapt to environments. And that's why not all people have the same way of life, the same culture, because we live in such dramatically different environments. Um, that's a very simplistic view, though, because if but we it's, look... It's one that I think is very, very instructive, certainly because it, it clues us into a, a pattern and, and sort of a concept that I think we all understand. And yeah. um, I, I think the other part of that, and uh, I just want to close the segment with this thought, is that these changes are gradational. So your marvelous example with the coat also extends, say, as we, as, as, as our environmental zonation moves, say, southward from where you are to the equator, then the nature of that coat changes, yes. that the amount of time that you have to wear that coat changes, and that eventually, once you get down into the equatorial environments, there's no more coat. Yeah, and, that's right. And uh, I think that those concepts are incredibly useful, and I think you've expressed it in a way that I think most of our listenerships can follow. And um, I think that when we come back after these words, I'd like to develop. I'd like for you to develop that concept in in a greater sense, and possibly and probably put it into a temporal perspective, sure. and uh, sort of assess the the changes and human adaptations and patterns moving forward. And we will be back with this very fascinating discussion with Dr. Peter Peregrine of Lawrence University after these words. Voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio. 
with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with this very unique episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And, and my special guest is Dr. Peter Peregrine, who is a student of cultural evolution and has published extensively on the topic. And we were trying to define the uh, emergence of the concept and to track it with a variety of different types of illustrations. And I think, Peter, one of the uh, really interesting ways in which we can discuss this and offer our audience more of a, a, a concept on what this really means is uh, looking at the temporal perspective on it. We gave You gave us a couple of examples of the spatial perspective, how adaptation to environment results in different uh, cultural responses in, in somewhat of a feedback loop. And now let's talk about it in, in, in the archaeological sense, which uh, in the most fundamental looks, looks uh, at going back in time. And so why don't you pick it up from that point? Sure. Um, so if we were to go back 20,000 years and look around... Um, let's say Southwest Asia, so Syria, where I worked extensively, we would find that everybody was living in what we'd call a hunting and gathering lifestyle. They'd be living in small mobile groups and collecting food, fairly well, sophisticated but simple technology of stone tools. And if we were to fast forward another 10,000 years, we would find that people actually are living pretty much the same way and have been doing so at that point for tens of thousands of years. But by about 
10, 12,000 years ago, major changes were happening in that area, and that is people started to domesticate wheat and emmer and barley and goats, and they started settling down into caves and then small communities and then large communities. And it's those changes that really make up cultural evolution and, and are the really fascinating ones that we want to ask, which uh, is not the same idea of an adaptation to an environment like we might think of and like uh, it, it, we talked about as, as a good example of wearing a coat. In the north, you wear a heavier coat. You go down further south, the coat changes. You go down further south, the coat changes. But in reality, things aren't quite that simple. Um, the same climate in two different parts of the world will have very different cultures. So as we talk about adaptation and adaptation to environment, that's only one level of cultural evolution. We have to get down to a much more specific level. And what's going on in a very specific local environment that people are adapting to? So if we look at Syria 10, 12,000 years ago, there's a major climatic change happening called the Younger Dryas. And the world is starting to dry out and heat up. And people who were living on wheat and emmer and barley in wild stands are finding that those wild stands of wheat and emmer and barley are becoming more scarce. So they start actively sowing those plants. They start actively trying to grow them to make more food uh, in this changing environment. And out of that process, we get the origins of domesticated plants and animals. Um, that, again, is a fairly simple picture of that. But we also begin having people then settling down because they're making agricultural plots. They're, they're growing plants, and they're keeping animals. And so they're starting to live in sedentary communities. When you start being in a sedentary community, you can't get to all of the resources that you used to be able to, so communities start trading with one another, and so you get a whole change in the economy. When you start getting lots of people living together, you also start having conflict. People are get angry at one another. People um, do bad things, and so you start having to have some kind of higher-level social order. And all of those things become adaptations to an environment, not just those physical ones, but also ways of organizing yourself so that you can live in, in a particular kind of world. And if we go beyond that, you're not living just in a physical world. There's a social world. You have communities around you. And so you have to adapt your way of life to those communities that, around, that surround you. In the end, that idea of cultural adaptation creating change and causing cultural evolution then becomes really complicated and a very um, interesting, difficult problem for us to, to understand. Again, if we were to go back 10,000 years and look at the Middle East, at, at Syria, basically everybody is living in a tiny little community independent of everyone else. We look at it now and we know that Everyone in Syria is living in this huge nation state that unfortunately is engulfed in a civil war and we're going to see probably some new 
form of society uh, take over that world. So these changes have been dramatic and fascinating. And one of the the things that I hope the listenership will understand is that um, archaeology is the only discipline that can actually look at that because we're the only discipline that has the time depth to see these changes happening over hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years uh, so that we're the only people that can really look at these long-term changes. Um, History and goes, I, yeah, oh, go I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And as we get into this entire question of the age of sustainability and the question of what is uh, what's known as the Anthropocene, which is which is a concept that we've talked about before, I think you're absolutely right that archaeologists do provide that window of time depth and those very very tricky and complicated questions that that you've certainly answered. So eloquently are, are issues that we have to look at specifically, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. This dynamic between environment and culture is very, very complicated. It's very um, complicated. Certainly, um, the, a lot of, a lot of contemporary archaeological thought, and it's, it's not even revolution anymore, is, is clearly that these changes, um, that occurred about 12,000 years ago are, are related to a, a very critical um, environmental event. You talk about the Younger Dryas, of course, and just generally the advent of what we call the Holocene, which is mm-hmm. a general global warming phenomenon. But in fact, uh, as the Holocene emerged, uh, the adjustments and the adaptations and the networks that evolved varied, as you said so eloquently, differently in different parts of the world because of the complexity of the human environmental dynamic. And I, I think that that's a point that I'd like to hear you discuss sure. a little bit more so that, like we, we talked about the code example, but if, if traditions were totally different and, and had uh, different concepts in terms of keeping shelter, maintaining protection over the skin, if that had changed and if, if social adjustments were different, then the response even visibly to, uh, to how people adjusted would have been completely different, so I'd like to hear you elaborate on that a little bit more. Well, that's right. and there, I think there's really two issues in there, and both of them are fascinating and related. One of them has to do with this creation of the Anthropocene, and that transition, the, the geologists tend to place that in the 19th century. Some go back to the 16th century, but frankly, I would put that back um, 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for that is when human beings started to actively domesticate plants and animals, and it's a process that took two or 3,000 years, but ultimately it occurred in many different places around the world and in a fairly short period of time in terms of human history and in, within 5,000 years all over the world, people who were not connected to one another in any way became agricultural. So it was a human revolution, and it was a dramatic human revolution in the following way. And before we started to domesticate plants and animals, we, we generally behaved like most other animals in that we went out and we gathered food and we used the environment that we encountered in front of us. Once we started agriculture, 
we began to actively shape the environment that confronted us. We started to actively select for the kinds of plants that were growing there. And we started actively destroying particular plants and animals and insects that we didn't want there. And so in doing that, we started shaping the world that we live in rather than simply adapting or uh, to a world that we're that we are confronted with and that is a very dramatic change in terms of this idea of culture as a way of adapting to the environment because we're not only using culture to adapt to an environment culture is also actively shaping an environment and so getting on to sort of the second point which has to do with how we understand that much of my work recently has been at a place called the Santa Fe Institute, which um, began with uh, primarily physicists and mathematicians who were interested in studying very complex physical phenomenon, the kinds of things that you study in, in high-energy particle physics. And what they started talking about were complex systems, and I like to think of culture now as a complex adaptive system. And what, what can happen in a complex adaptive system is that you get feedback loops that create what we refer to as emergent properties of the system that may have never, we, that you may never have anticipated would have occurred. Right. Um, and that you get changes that can be dramatic leaps and also long periods of stability, and many times they're not readily predictable. So when we start getting this very complex situation where culture is helping us to adapt to an environment, but at the same time we are using culture to actively shape the environment, we start getting into situations where we can make um, unpredictable changes that can be catastrophic. Um, on the other hand, we can make changes that can be extremely beneficiary to us. And to me, that's when the, the Anthropocene begins, when humans are shaping the environment in such a dramatic way that we can start doing, creating really dramatic unpredictable changes in the landscape. And one of them that we might talk about is the salinization of the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys in Syria and Iraq, where I worked, where essentially um, the, the states, the great ancient states of Ur and, and um, Erdu and Akkad and Sumer and all these yeah. things, salinated the soil so that they could no longer survive. They essentially made themselves extinct in some cases because they couldn't grow crops anymore. They had, through irrigation, through this great innovation, they had actually created a non-sustainable situation and destroyed the very soils that they were relying on. And we will be back with our very unique discussion on cultural evolution and the relationship between human organization and environment after these words. Stay tuned.
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Living your best life isn't just about fitness and health. It's also about living a better life emotionally and creating balance. You know where you want to be, but what steps do you take to get there? Listen to Good Health for a Great Life with host Rick Barnabo. We'll bring you guest experts and tools to help you connect the dots from who and where you are to who and where you want to be. It's time to take responsibility for your life. Listen every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Today's episode features a fascinating discussion with Dr. Peter Peregrine of, of Lawrence University, who one of whose uh, major research topics is the very fascinating question of cultural evolution and the adjustment that people make through time and across time and space, actually, to changes in environment and changes in their way of coping with the environment. And one of the topics that uh, has has really swept the field very recently is this entire question that we've talked about, which is the Anthropocene, and essentially coming to grips with the fact that whereas in previous uh, periods in the human condition, um, humans adjusted to their environments, now we have reached a state, uh, and that this is all tied into the entire global warming question and climate change, where effectively we have come to the point where we are impacting the environment in ways that have never been done before. Now there are very easy, there, there are a lot of different explanations for how and when this happened. I think uh, certainly uh, there's a lot of people who would say that one of the nick points here, I think, was the uh, Industrial Revolution of the early to mid-19th century in Western Europe and the United States that sort of provided a spark for uh, for these monumental changes that are no longer incremental, as many of us have seen, but they are exponential in the way that uh, the, the human impact on the environment is, is getting to a point where uh, some people are saying we are reaching a point of no return. Uh, I don't want to get into that specifically, but uh, certainly, uh, Peter, you've been talking about uh, 
the impacts of population and technology and and how that uh, really has sort of changed the way in which we need to view the entire cultural evolutionary process and the entire nature of adaptation to uh, to environmental systems. And I'd like to hear you uh, specify and, and capitalize on that. Sure. Um, if we look over time again, we go back as we did in the last segment uh, 12,000 years ago or so. There are perhaps a million, two million people, human beings inhabiting the planet. And once we started uh, with agriculture um, 10,000 or so years ago, and, and, and ha- over a course of three or 4,000 years as agriculture begins around the world, um, we also see an, an emergence of greater population. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and lots of research by archaeologists done trying to explain that. But if we look at that process as part of cultural evolution, um, it, we have human beings who are now shaping their environment, and most of the time they're able to shape it in a way that helps it be more stable and more sustainable um, and in a sense, we're seeing in the archaeological record all of the successes that uh, people that are able to make a more sustainable, a more stable, uh, a better environment for they, them to live in continue over time, and we can see them in the archaeological record. And human beings have been spectacular at doing that, so that today we have 7 billion people on the planet. Um, we have environments that are remarkable, cities where we can have 20 million or more people in a very small area, well, that's a, a remarkable achievement um, that, that follows the same process. But, as you say, the, we, question, we, we have to ask ourselves how long that is sustainable. And I think archaeology is really uh, an important tool in doing that, uh, this gets a little bit away from population and technology, which I, mm-hmm. I hope I can get back to, but archaeology is a wonderful tool in doing that because we can also, we're one of the few disciplines that can see the failures, and, and we can see these marvelous ancient civilizations that collapsed because they created systems that were not sustainable. Many many societies collapsed because they were conquered, but um, if we look at all the great ancient civilizations, most of them uh, either transformed so dramatically that they don't look anything like they used to, or they fell apart. Right. And and we have to start asking these sustainability questions. And I think archaeology gives us a way of doing that because we can look at both the successes in cultural evolution because it's, it's not a, snap, a snapshot in time. We're looking at long-term development and oftentimes a long-term shift towards uh, a collapse or a transformation. Um, and we have the, the time scale to be able to do that and the tools with, that we can do that with. Now, To get back to population and technology, two of the things archaeologists have looked at um, very closely and have gotten extremely good at looking at are technology 
and population. Technology is quite obvious why we as archaeologists would look at that because that's really what preserves. We have tools and uh, it, we have stone and ceramics and all kinds of nice things that last in the soil over long periods of time. So we can look at technology very well. But um, because of uh, people interested in cultural evolution, early on in the discipline, uh, people look to Darwin and look to the model that Darwin created, which is essentially that population grows until there's a struggle for existence and those organisms with the best adaptations are the ones that survive. Right. So sort of in a coarse way, early on in the study of cultural evolution, anthropologists, archaeologists did that and started looking at, well, when can we see population growing? When can we see what used to be called population pressure? And can we see population pressure driving innovations in technology or innovations in ways to organize people that then leads to new ways of doing things and new cultural evolutionary events? So we actually, as a discipline, got quite good and at measuring population. And what we found is that there's a dramatic relationship between population growth and technological and cultural change. And it's very hard to pull out which one of those is uh, driving that process. And what we call, and I think is the title of, the, of this uh, segment, what we call prime movers, the, the things that drive cultural change, the things that have been the basic force creating all of the variety of culture around us. Um, 20 years ago or so, we would be having big fights about whether it was population doing that or whether it was technological innovation that did that or whether it was warfare that did that or conflict. Right. Today we're in a much different place because we realize the answer is much more complicated than that. It's a very complex relationship. And, and um, that complex relationship requires us to start working with people that, are, that work with those kinds of complex relationships and work with complex adaptive systems. Right. Um, so what I've been doing... Um, with people at the Santa Fe Institute is trying to look at cultural evolution and change through that framework. And one of the remarkable things that is coming out of work that um, is being done at the Santa Fe Institute and some of the work I've been lucky enough to be part of is that there are very fascinating patterns that we can see in, in terms of what we would call scalar processes as cultures scale up and get bigger, or as cities scale up and get bigger, or as particular organizations scale up and get bigger, there are processes that we actually can see, and by using new statistical tools and modeling and things that, that allow us to look at complex systems um, in a systematic way, we actually can see patterns that are fairly regular. Now, yeah. the important thing about that is that once we can do that, archaeology 
becomes a tool that isn't just a pursuit where we get to look at the past and, and understand these interesting stories. Now we can start contributing to studies of long-term change and these predictable patterns. And if we can create models where we can follow a path for a long period of time, that means we can begin forecasting into the future or we can start making predictions about what could happen after following this long process of change. And that brings us now to what we were talking about, issues of sustainability and population. And if we have these these patterns that we can see that are regular and we can trace them over a long period of time, can we look into the future a hundred years or a thousand years and begin to, to make uh, probabilistic kind of suggestions of it is likely that these kinds of things will happen if we do this or that right. these other kinds of things will happen if we do that. Yeah, and, but, but there's, there's, there are some issues here that I, I think uh, you're putting your finger on that um, – that, that I think provoke a tremendous amount of thought and give us a certain amount of pause because we are now, I mean, a lot of people are forecasting this, and obviously you know this well, that we get to the point of no return with climate change. Yeah. Um, how do we make these adjustments? Well, there were, in fact, major adjustments made at various nick points or thresholds in uh, in in the uh, the globalized the trend to globalization and to the potential ca- catastrophes that that the world was witnessing even as as early as the late 19th century when industrialization got really big yeah. and all of a sudden we had the age of discovery the first dec- the first two decades of the 20th century accommodated a lot of these massive changes with this yep. rash of discoveries in the the creation of the automobile air airlines um radios communication these were all functions of the times and the changes in the demographics that seem to be very closely linked to this and and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that for example right now we're talking about uh the age of sustainability and the what are we going to do about the uh the eradication of some of our resources, and yet at the same time, now we're talking about the possibility, and a very real possibility, I think, of uh, confronting the global water shortage by actually developing efficient strategies to desalinize ocean water. I mean, so there are all sorts of possibilities that hadn't been thought about, but that for some reason this this uh, unusual interconnection between technology and population can often, in fact, result in a positive feedback loop. And, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that after we come back from these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. 
Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are. Uh talking with Dr. Peter Peregrine, professor of anthropology at Lawrence University, and we've centered on the topic of cultural evolution, and we have covered this in a variety of different ways. We have discussed the sort of theoretical foundations of cultural evolution, and we've developed some examples and indications of how cultural evolution is a long-standing process that uh, initially began with uh, biological changes and then became uh, intricately involved in cultural developments over the past 100,000, 20,000, 10,000 years, and finally into the contemporary world where we're looking at uh, monumental uh, changes in the landscape, uh, climate change, and the adjustments that are demanded of us to look at global solutions to many of these problems. We've talked about technology. We've talked about population. We've also talked about the uh, strong potential of the human condition and human beings to actually cope with these issues and these potential crises in very creative and dynamic senses and that that in many cases and uh, not always certainly but we have come up with solutions to some of these very very challenging uh, problems in the adaptation uh, the relationship between culture and environment that wouldn't have been conceived uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago but now all of a sudden because of the range and the scale of what we're up against the creative minds of the world have come along and, and, and provided some very key solutions and potential answers to these questions. So, Peter, why don't you pick it up from there and, and let us know how archaeology fits into this and, and where you see this entire range of, of, of study and development proceeding as we go forward. Sure. Well, you had raised a couple of really interesting issues, uh, and this is uh, uh, one of the core facets of cultural evolution, really what it's all about, is that human beings find solutions to problems. Um, they, they're able to find ways to address problems that arise, whether they are coming from outside of the culture or whether decisions that were made 
uh, earlier by people, uh, uh, shaped things so that they no longer are working right. And that's kind of a, just a continuous process of cultural evolution that, that corrections have to be made in the way things are done um, because things in the environment change or things within the culture changes or a new society comes uh, to being a neighbor or whatever. Those happen all of the time. And so, in fact, cultural evolution tells us that we have gotten very, very good at using culture to adapt to changing conditions. And if we look back over time, human beings have adapted to dramatic climatic changes, um, changes that uh, 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 I believe something like 8 degrees Celsius or something in the, in the last ice age, so far beyond what we're talking about with the potential for global warming in the next century. Having said that, there were dramatic costs to those uh, changes, and we know that large numbers of people died off. Human beings at the last glacial maximum were in two or three small refugium. Uh, we know that there were genetic bottlenecks, um, that there, we, we think, uh, were some cultural bottlenecks. So even though we can survive uh, those kinds of dramatic changes, and it's one of the great things about culture that it provides us those opportunities to survive those dramatic changes. Um, there, there are costs, and not everyone survives, and the survival conditions are not always uh, what we might want. Um, in my book, What Happened in Prehistory, there, there are really two lessons there uh, that I put forward in that book. Uh, that I think are really important to understand for this discussion. And one of them is that human beings make choices about how to shape the environment. So we are not powerless in the situations that we find ourselves. And again, that's one of the great things about culture and our ability to adapt through culture is that we, to a great extent, can control our own destiny. There, there, of course, are situations where an asteroid might hit Earth or a volcanic eruption. We can't control those, but we can respond to them quickly, and we can make decisions that allow us to survive. Um, I think that the big question that we have to ask ourselves is, have we been making decisions on how to do things uh, that provide for long-term sustainability and long-term survival. Uh, and there's no question in my mind that we will come up with great technological advances and that humans will continue. Um, I think the question is, are we going to make choices about that that allow us to survive in ways that we, that we desire? And the other interesting thing, if we look over the course of human history, is that there has been a narrowing or an attenuation of the decision-making structures uh, in human history. If we were to go back again 12,000 years ago, decisions are made uh, within sort of a family structure or within a community structure. Now, everyone on Earth lives in a condition where decisions are made by a fairly narrow small group of people with, within whatever society or nation state they live in. Mm -hmm. And 
that's both beneficial but also potentially dangerous because those individuals, um, if they're not well-informed, could make really poor decisions and decisions that, that affect not just themselves but millions of people. And so part of what um, uh, I hope a program like this does, um, a book like my, uh, What Happened in Prehistory, um, other opportunities to reach out to the public and tell them the story of the past is to get people thinking that we we shouldn't be making choices that are based just on what we see today. We shouldn't be making choices that are based on opinion, but we really should look at what happened in the past. Where where have things that humans have done succeeded well? Where have choices been made on how to respond to change that have worked well? And what are responses that have not worked very well? Because we have lots of those that we can look at through the archaeological record. And then the other thing is to look at these broad patterns that we can see, the kinds of things that my colleagues at the Santa Fe Institute and, and many other people are now starting to develop where we can we can um, not necessarily predict, but we can see broad patterns and we can create models where we can we can change the parameters of the model and begin to see what might happen. What might happen if we develop large-scale desalinization, as you suggested? What might happen if we find um, a new source of energy in fusion or something? And how could all of that play out in the future? How could we make decisions that allow us not just to survive, but to, to survive well? And, and on, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. The time wow. just flew by on this program. It obviously, absolutely did. A, Yeah, obviously a lot more questions that we have to answer. But I think one of the positive notes here is that there is hope, seriously, quite seriously, yeah. and that we are able to, if we, we keep on following these patterns in history and, and in prehistory for that matter, then uh, collectively uh, humans will get together and solve many of these critical issues. But as you say, it's a potential minefield as well. Well, I want to thank so much my uh, very special guest, Dr. Peter Peregrin, Professor of Anthropology at Lawrence University. And we look forward to uh, having a follow-up with him. And until we see you again next week or listen to you or you listen to us next week, good night and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.